0: We can make a difference.
1: A million podcasters would kill for this podcast.
0: In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. <laughs>
1: Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 90, The Devil Wears Prada. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. So, welcome once again, this is episode 90. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I've done 90 episodes of this podcast. I hope that you're all continuing to keep safe and well. Uh, Welcome back to all returning listeners and for brand new listeners know that here at Verbal Diorama, we provide a welcoming and nurturing environment for new starters, a little bit unlike Runway Magazine. There's lots going on here at Verbal Diorama, episodes every week, uh, except when I take a mandated break week like I did last week, plus lots of new things kind of always going on in the background. Uh, there's a brand new animation podcast called Rotoscope Arama, uh, plus some brand new exclusive episodes on horizon just for patrons i'm currently hiring a first and a second assistant uh let verbal diorama hr know if you're interested in applying uh that is completely false there is literally nothing i can't afford to pay anyone i'm an independent podcaster (laughs) like that's not gonna happen before i start i'd just like to say a massive thank you for the awesome feedback on the episode that i did on long kiss Goodnight. pretty much everyone agrees it's such an underrated gem it's so much fun and, uh, and I think we all know what we're going to be watching at Christmas. Now, I'm the boss here at Verbal Diorama because I literally do everything. So that, therefore, makes me the boss. And as a smart, successful businesswoman, I like to think that I know how Miranda Priestly ticks. Um, but honestly, I'm far too nice to be like her. And this is probably why Verbal Diorama is not the runway magazine of podcasts let's be honest. Here's the trailer for The Devil Wears Prada. Miranda Priestley is the editor-in-chief of Runway.
0: So you don't read Runway? No. Not to mention a legend. And before today you'd never heard of me? No. You work a year for her and you can get a job at any magazine you want. You have no style or sense of fashion. I, I. No, no. That wasn't a question.
2: You got a job at a fashion magazine? Yes. What was it? A phone interview? <laughs> Who is that? Are we doing a before and after piece I don't know about?
0: <laughs> In the world of high fashion... There you are, Emily. Actually, it's Andy. My name is Andy. A million girls would kill for this job. Is there some reason that my coffee isn't here? Did she go to Rwanda for the beans or something?
2: Where so much is at stake...
0: I need 10 or 15 skirts. The fight! The fight! Hello? Where are my eggs?
1: Lingerie.
0: She is vicious. Andy Sachs
2: is about to discover.
0: She hates me, Nigel. There's a way that you can help me. Little Chris go and some fishing
2: line and we're in business. It's not just about what you wear.
0: What do you think? <laughs> Andy, you look so chic. You look so thin. Do I? Just one stomach flew away from my gold weight.
2: It's about who you are.
0: Name. I got it.
1: Let me talk to her. No, 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 no! no, no, no. That thing with bloodstains. Oh no! Phone. I'm leaving right now. Do
0: you know why
2: I hired you? I see a great deal of myself in you. The person whose calls you always take—that's the relationship you're in. Let me know when your whole life goes up in smoke. That means it's
0: time for a promotion. People think that success just happens to you. It doesn't. You want this life? The decision's yours. The devil wears Prada.
1: Enthusiastic and naive graduate Andrea Andy Sachs is hired to work as the second assistant of the powerful and sophisticated Miranda Priestley, the ruthless and merciless editor-in-chief of Runway, the biggest fashion magazine in the world. Andy dreams of becoming a serious journalist and wants to use the opportunity at Runway as a springboard to greater success. First assistant Emily advises Andy about the behaviour and preferences of the demanding Miranda and stylist Nigel helps Andy to dress more adequately for the environment. Andy changes her attitude and behaviour, affecting her private life and the relationship with her boyfriend, but impresses Miranda in the process. A million girls would kill for this job. Let's quickly go through the cast. Obviously, I mean, this is an incredible cast uh, for a start. We have Meryl Streep, the one and only Meryl Streep as Miranda Priestley. Anne Hathaway as Andrea Sachs, Emily Blunt as Emily Charlton, Stanley Tucci as Nigel Kipling, Simon Baker as Christian Thompson, Adrian Grenier as Nate Cooper, Giselle Buncheon as Serena, Tracy Toms as Lily, Rich Summer as Doug and Daniel Sunjata as James Holt. We also have cameos in this movie from the likes of Valentina Garavani, Giancarlo Giametti, Carlos D'Souza, Bridget Hall, Robert Verdi and Heidi Klum all as themselves and writer Lauren Weisberger as the twins' nanny. Uh, Robert Verdi is an openly gay fashion commentator for E! He actually auditioned for the role of Nigel, but later claimed they had no intention of hiring him and just wanted to use him as a template for the actor eventually cast, which was Stanley Tucci. The screenplay for The Devil Wears Prada was by Aline Brosh McKenna. Uh, She also co-created the excellent Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which I highly recommend because... Eileen Brush McKenna and Rachel Bloom, they are the creators of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and they are absolutely fantastic writers. Please watch Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, it's so much fun. It's based on The Devil Wears Prada by Lauren Weisberger and it was directed by David Frankel. So Lauren Weisberger, uh, the writer of the source material novel of the same name, had spent time working at Vogue as the personal assistant of Anna Wintour and that's a name that's going to be frequently mentioned in this episode. As the character of Miranda Priestley is widely recognised as being partially moulded on Wintour. It's a romana claire, uh, a fictional account based on real experiences and people. Anna Wintour, Editor-in-Chief of Vogue since 1988 and Global Chief Content Officer for Condé Nast since 2020. She's also Artistic Director of Condé Nast and Global Editorial Director of Vogue. So, you know, basically sitting around twiddling her thumbs all day. She was also the artistic inspiration for Edna Mode in The Incredibles, that's episode 30 of this podcast. Anna Wintour is often described as emotionally distant, a perfectionist, intimidating and aloof. Her angry outbursts led to her being nicknamed Nuclear Wintour, a sobriquet she has asked the New York Times not to use again. She has high standards, not just for herself, but for Vogue. She's on record for asking high-profile celebrities, such as Oprah, to lose weight before appearing on the cover. Anna Wintour is really the ultimate control freak, but despite her reputation, her personality traits, and her elitist lifestyle, you can't say that she's not successful and good at what she does. While Miranda is fictional, the woman that she's partially based on is very real, and like Miranda, Anna Wintour is a successful businesswoman who just doesn't act like we'd expect a woman to act. Um, And that's something that I'm going to come back to, so let's put a pin in that. Weisberger's experiences of moving to Manhattan and working for Anna Wintour at Vogue for 10 months formed the basis for her first novel, The Devil Wears Prada, and before its completion and publication in 2003, 20th Century Fox Executive Vice President Carla Hacken had purchased the film rights after only seeing 100 pages of manuscript and an outline for the rest of the plot. The deciding factor was Miranda Priestly, and Carla Hacken called her one of the greatest villains ever. It goes without saying, and to quote Aline Brosh McKenna's crazy ex-girlfriend, it's a lot more nuanced than that. So comedy directors were sought for the directorial job for The Devil Wears Prada, but eventually David Frankel was hired, despite only having made one movie in the past. That was 1995's Miami Rhapsody, which he also wrote, and that starred Sarah Jessica Parker, Mia Farrow and Antonia Banderas. But he did have quite a lot of TV experience, namely on Sex and the City and Entourage, The former, Sex and the City, also being set in New York, featuring a primarily female cast, and also very heavily stylised. He got the job on The Devil Wears Prada for his frankness on the adaptation. He actually thought it originally undirectable. He believed it demonised and punished Miranda unnecessarily. Uh, It was David Frankel who suggested to producer Wendy Finerman that excellence should be celebrated. After deciding to walk away from The Devil Wears Prada, his agent asked him to reconsider and he took the job as well as gave Feynman extensive notes on how the adaptation of the book to movie could be reworked in order to make the movie work a lot better. There are a lot of differences between the book and the movie, Originally, the multiple versions of the draft screenplay, they were each individually written by Peter Hedges, Paul Rudnick and Don Roos. They very closely followed the storyline in the book and they resembled more of a satire, uh, kind of along the lines of 2001 Zoolander, with Miranda getting her comeuppance at the end and basically serving as a revenge plot for Andy. This idea was scrapped as it was felt that the third act of the novel wasn't strong enough to translate to film and Aline Brosh McKenna was brought on board in part to bring her experience of being a 20-something new writer living in New York City. She produced a draft which struck the right balance between the source material and a fresh take on the professional relationship and conflict between Andy and Miranda, which both Frankel and Feynman really liked. McKenna took advice from people in the fashion industry about their actual exchanges. You might think that the comments in this movie between characters are mean-spirited, However, the fashion industry is cutthroat. There are no pep talks. You just get on with your job. You don't have time to be nice to someone inferior to you. And the scene between Andy and Nigel is a really good example of that. One thing that the team universally agreed on was that book version of Miranda was far too mean. They decided to tone down her cruel behaviour and insults. I mean, that's not the Miranda that we ended up with, and I'm going to come back to that, because at this point, Fox still hadn't greenlit the Devil Wears Prada, but all of that changed when it came to casting. So casting got underway, and there was literally only one choice for Miranda. Fox actively focused on pursuing Meryl Streep, Carla Hacken, when informed that Meryl Streep had read the script and agreed to meet with David Frankel, recalls the mentality of, please God, let it be Meryl. Streep would meet with David Frankel and like the idea for the movie and could see it being a huge hit. However, she had caveats. And if you're Meryl Streep, (laughs) then you have caveats. People listen to what you have to say. She wanted Miranda to be more than just a pantomime villain or a caricature. Miranda was to be a savvy businesswoman, but also a fully formed woman in her own right. She wanted the movie to celebrate Miranda's achievements. Meryl Streep was key to several script changes to help humanise Miranda and also appreciate her business acumen. Additionally, Streep didn't feel that the salary that they were offering to her to play Miranda was reflective of her value to the film. After negotiations, and we could say channeling her in Miranda Priestly, her salary was doubled to $4 million, uh, to which she signed on and Fox then officially greenlit the movie. And I think we can all agree that Meryl Streep is definitely worth $4 million for this movie. She's actually worth considerably more when you take into account how much the movie actually ended up making. But we'll come back to financials a bit later. While Anna Hathaway is literally ideal for Andy, she wasn't first second, third, fourth, or even fifth choice. Uh, According to Hathaway, she was ninth choice for the role. The first choice had been Rachel McAdams, who impressed producers after starring Turns in the Notebook and Mean Girls, but she turned down the role multiple times and she basically cited her decision to step away from mainstream material. Indeed, at that point, uh, Rachel McAdams took a brief hiatus in 2006 after making Wedding Crashers and Red Eye, Claire Danes and Juliette Lewis were also considered, along with five unnamed other actresses, before Anne Hathaway was considered, and Anne Hathaway actively sought out the part. She met with Carla Hacken, she traced Hire Me into the sand of the Zen Garden on Carla Hacken's desk, and Anne Hathaway had a strong teen audience, especially from the Princess Diaries movies, and the student didn't actually realise how popular her star was. Um, But, you know, to quote the best film ever made, The Mummy. Patience was a virtue uh, when it came to Anne Hathaway getting the role of Andy Sachs, because she did get the role, obviously, and she relished the opportunity to work with Meryl Streep. But honestly, it really changed the course of her career. It opened her up to the possibility of more adult roles, uh, including acclaimed roles in things like Rachel Getting Married and Les Miserables. And arguably, without The Devil Wears Prada, Anne Hathaway may not have had that transitional success that she then had, And then, you know, we move on to Emily Blunt. Um, The role of Emily was originally American. Miranda was originally British, and so obviously their accents swapped. Emily was surprisingly difficult to cast. Over 100 actresses auditioned, but none of them actually seemed to fit. Emily Blunt was on her way to London after auditioning in LA for the movie Aragon. A Fox executive taped her reading some lines. She was wearing jeans and flip-flops at the time, and she read the lines in her native English accent. The producers really liked her, but they basically wanted her back for a proper audition. Fortuitously for them, Emily Blunt didn't get the role in Aragon. So the Devil Wears Prada producers were then free to not only audition, but also hire her. So, this time, she came for the audition, she dressed in character, but she insisted on keeping the British accent, and let's be honest, a star was born, because undoubtedly, Emily Blunt's career really took off after this movie. She was nominated for a BAFTA and a Golden Globe for her performance as Emily Charlton, and is now one of the biggest stars in Hollywood in her own right. She also has family ties with another, the Devil Wears Prada colleague as well, and that is Stanley Tucci. So Stanley Tucci, he was hired just three days before shooting started uh, as runway's stylist, Nigel Kipling, and basically all of the cast became really good friends, and so when Emily Blunt married John Krasinski in 2010... She invited Stanley Tucci, who was sadly at that point a widower, to their wedding. And at their wedding, Stanley Tucci met Felicity Blunt, uh, Emily's sister, who was a literary agent. And Stanley Tucci married Felicity Blunt in 2012. They now have two children together. And so Stanley Tucci is now Emily Blunt's brother-in-law. And it came from them starring together in this movie. And that is just such a lovely story. The cast was rounded out by actual supermodel Giselle Buncheon, as Serena, who only agreed to be in the film if she was not cast as a model. I mentioned earlier about Meryl Streep and the fact that she had caveats for playing Miranda. Um, and I think it would be very easy to play Miranda like a tyrant. You know, to scream and shout... Uh, to have zero layers or any nuance to the character and just literally be evil. And arguably, a less accomplished actor probably would have given a straight antagonist performance and be done with it. And The Devil Wears Prada would have suffered in that situation Uh, because this is a movie that lives or dies on the strength of its villain. And I use that term in inverted commas because Miranda may be the titular devil, but having Meryl Streep gives those layers of complexity and the nuance necessary to make miranda a human being the initial table read was stunned when instead of streep barking her lines she instead said them almost inaudibly calm in many ways displaying a more fierce authority than had she been loud or bossy. Uh, (laughs) That that is terrible, by the way. This is why I'm not an actor. But Meryl Streep was very certain what and who she wanted Miranda to be. And she certainly did not want to emulate Anna Wintour uh, in character or look. Uh, Miranda's hairstyle was inspired by model and actress Carmen Della Orofici, And her general look was inspired by French politician Christine Lagarde. Her soft speaking voice is said to be inspired by Clint Eastwood, and the delivery on director Mike Nichols, and it's fitting that her performance was based on powerful men. I'm going to come back to that in a little bit as well. Certain key scenes that Streep had a direct influence on included the famous cerulean sweater scene, which explains the trickle-down effect the fashion industry has with the high street and online retailers. It's not a speech about fashion, it's a speech about business and marketing. Every word of the script appears in the final movie, um, and this speech is especially relevant in today's world of like Instagram influencers and looks filtering down from the catwalk to places like Instagram to the budget stores. Despite not many of us having access to, or in my case, any sense of, fashion, even something as simple as a brand of leggings is carefully marketed to the right people. On the film's 10th anniversary in 2016, online magazine Mike wrote that, quote, In many ways, Priestley's monologue nailed the real problem with cultural appropriation, people not understanding the history or meaning behind something like cornrows or headdresses, but treating it like a new trend or accessory anyway, unquote. Meryl Streep was also pivotal to the scene at the Paris Hotel, where she appears to Andy, makeupless, and opens up about her impending divorce. Streep insisted that we see Miranda as a woman, as opposed to just Miranda, the businesswoman. I mentioned Paris, the film shot on location in New York, but the budget didn't originally stretch to filming on location in Paris. Six weeks into the shoot, editors cut a sizzle reel for Fox, which convinced executives to not only set a summer release date, but also up the budget, which meant they could fly Anne Hathaway and Simon Baker to Paris for two days. Meryl Streep, however, did not fly to Paris. All of the Paris scenes with her were actually shot in New York and cleverly disguised to look like Paris, with all the Parisian hotel scenes filmed at the St Regis Hotel in Manhattan and the fashion show on a soundstage in Queens. Going back to The Wrath of Anna Wintour, many industry professionals and designers avoided appearing in the movie as themselves because they just didn't want to get on the wrong side of Anna Wintour. While they wouldn't appear personally, apart from a few notable exceptions, like Valentino, many did allow their clothes and accessories to appear in the movie, making The Devil Wears Prada one of the most expensively costumed films in history. So let's talk about the fashion. And bear in mind, I am not a fashionable person. I'm sitting here recording in literally leggings and a sweatshirt. This is basically lockdown (laughs) uniform for me. So I have no idea what is fashionable and what isn't. But $12,000 handbags and $40,000 fur coats were commonplace on set. And film stylist Patricia Field, more impressively, only had a costume budget of $100,000. But... Thankfully, she had a lot of friends in the fashion industry. Meryl Streep had 60 costume changes alone, and as the head of a fashion empire, had to look expensive, high-end, and stylish at all times. Obviously, Prada was prominently placed. The movie opens with Miranda carrying a grey Prada bag, costing $1,445, with Streep also wearing a Prada suit in that scene. Four out of ten of the shoes on Meryl Streep's feet were Prada, Valentino, who cameoed, as I mentioned, provided Streep's black gown for the party. And Patricia Field used the archives of Donna Karen to create a wardrobe for Miranda with a flattering silhouette and a timeless elegance. Field had previously worked on Sex and the City, which is, as I said, a similarly style-conscious show, which also brought Manolo Blahnik's to the forefront of Minds Everywhere The appeal of working with Meryl Streep was, again, undeniable. I mean, I didn't even work in anywhere the same field as Meryl Streep, and I would be over the moon to literally just talk to her. Meryl, just, if you're interested, let me know, because I would just relish the opportunity to do literally anything with and for Meryl Streep. Even Anne Hathaway, who, obviously, the character of Andy is supposed to be less fashion-conscious... She still wore high-end Chanel, Dolce & Gabbana and Calvin Klein. Chanel provided 50% of Hathaway's wardrobe and the company were delighted to be shown on screen as the sort of young, fashionable choice for a young woman just starting out in the fashion industry. All of Patricia Field's hard work was worth it when she received her Best Costume Design Oscar nomination, which is especially interesting as the Academy is very fond of period costuming. Contemporary fashion rarely gets noticed for the Oscars. So the fact that this movie did, I think, is a testament to the brilliance of Patricia Field. And what's more impressive than the vast array of designers participating on the costuming for this movie, there were obviously those who wouldn't, many of whom Patricia Field won't name due to potential conflicts with Vogue. The most impressive thing is that Patricia Field only had three weeks to get the whole costuming department together, While most of the costumes remain on hangers and just for display in the background, the total amount of designer clothing, jewellery, shoes and bags in this movie is estimated to be worth around $1 million alone. Obviously, a lot of the stuff was on loan. They didn't really purchase a lot of the things, but still, it's $1 million on screen, even if it is a loan. And Anna Wintour, well, she attended the New York premiere of The Devil Wears Prada in Prada, of course, and apparently she likes the film, and she likes Meryl Streep's performance in particular. So, ultimately, although a lot of people were worried about the wrath of Anna Wintour when the film was being made, Anna Wintour actually likes this movie. So, I think that's probably the highest possible endorsement that you could get for The Devil Wears Prada. I think that there is a general kind of discourse about this movie that I have seen online about Andy and about how she changes to fit the mould of Runway. And I just want to kind of take a bit of a personal slant on it and say that the truth is that everyone kind of has this one job, the one that you really, really want, or the one that you really, really need to stick it out at. The one with the awful boss who's demanding, rude, and seemingly ungrateful for your efforts. But as it is mentioned in this movie, if Miranda were a man, her personality traits in the workplace would be completely acceptable. We expect male bosses to be demanding and rude. And we expect female bosses to be demure, polite and thankful. It's a societal misogyny that's almost bred into us that women who have chosen the workplace and are ambitious, cold and impossible to please are automatically the B word. Uh, And I'm not going to say the word because this is a family-friendly podcast, but you know which word I mean. But if a man is all of those things, then it's fine. He's just hardworking and determined. I want to mention Taylor Swift because Taylor Swift uh, is quoted about the music industry and I think it really sums this up perfectly she said and I quote if a man does something it's strategic if a woman does the same thing it's calculated a man is allowed to react a woman can only overreact a man does something confident and bold a woman does it the same way and she's smug a man stands up for himself a woman throws a temper tantrum and it's so true. It really is. I'm not going to suggest I'm any sort of level in business as Miranda. But working with men like I do, you see the differences between men and women in the workplace. How men are spoken to and how women are spoken to. And I can only have, honestly, the utmost respect for Miranda Priestley, even if she is completely fictional. Getting to where she's got, being the consummate professional, working hard and gaining the respect that she has. She actually has every right in the world to not be nice to people. She does not owe anyone anything. And I think that's really important is that, yes, it is good to be nice. I like to be nice to people, but you are not entitled to my niceness. And it's very much the same with Miranda. She has earned where she is. What it all kind of comes down to for me is it goes back to Meryl Streep's pitch-perfect performance. We get just enough of a glimpse behind Miranda's professional facade to know that she's just a woman under extreme pressure to get every little thing right. Because if she were to ever make a mistake, her neck would be on the line. At the end of the movie, it very almost is until she strategizes. It costs Nigel a promotion, but to Miranda, it's collateral damage. Because there are no friends in business, especially in the fashion industry. No one needs to be nice. Miranda does not have time for niceties. And then we realise that Andy might not want to admit that she's as ambitious and driven as Miranda. That she could never do what Miranda does until she realises that she actually did do what Miranda does. She isn't defined by her relationship with her boyfriend, Nate, who is the actual worst, by the way, for not understanding that she has work commitments on his birthday. And when Andy embraces the life Miranda offers her, she becomes emboldened, sexy and experiences and more importantly, embraces the power that being Miranda's second assistant affords her. And while I'll admit the way that the movie focuses on dieting and sizes that and both Andy and Emily mentioned their size far too much for my liking, this was the fashion industry in the mid-2000s. Nowadays, we're more used to seeing models of all shapes and sizes in fashion magazines, but back in 2006, size mattered, and the smaller the better. It makes you wonder, actually, if nowadays Miranda would use a plus-size model in her feature. Who knows? I think that Miranda would go with the times, and I think it is fashionable now to embrace people of all shapes and sizes. But certainly in 2006, you pretty much had to be a size zero. And I think even Nigel mentions that pretty much all of the clothing is sample-sized, which is really, really tiny. So, for example, a size four in America, uh, just to translate for British listeners, that would be a UK size eight So at the start of the movie, Andy is a size 6. That is a size 10. That is a perfectly normal size for a young woman. Um, But obviously in this industry, it pays to be as skinny as possible. And so that's why Andy ends up celebrating for dropping a dress size. I mean, luckily the movie doesn't dwell on it. But I really do think that that is just literally a product of its time. I certainly think that if a movie like this came out nowadays, I don't think they would be talking so much about size and about health. And especially uh, Emily's line about eating a cube of cheese. Because it is important to be healthy. And it's also important to not promote things like crash dieting and starving yourself. Moving on, so I want to go into the obligatory Keanu reference, so this is a little part of the podcast where I like to see if I can link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves, and um, Keanu might not have any obvious links to The Devil Wears Prada, however, he has starred in a film with the actual devil, Uh, and by that I mean Al Pacino's version of the devil uh, in The Devil's Advocate, Which is also the story of a young American enticed by a high-end New York firm and the power that comes with that job. So really, very similar to The Devil Wears Prada. Uh, It's also a really, really good movie. If you haven't seen The Devil's Advocate, I would really recommend it because, I mean, Keanu's great in it. But it's also a really, really interesting movie as well. So actually, do you know what? I think that's probably one of the best obligatory Keanu references I've ever done. So let me know if you agree. But I really do think that linking the Devil Wears Prada to the Devil's Advocate, not only for the title but also the plot, is actually pretty clever of me. I'm going to dine on that for a long time. No cubes of cheese for me. So the music in this movie, the score was by Theodore Shapiro and it relies heavily on pop music. Uh, The likes of Katie Tunstall's Suddenly I See always reminds me of this movie. Also included in the soundtrack are the likes of Madonna, U2, Alanis Morissette and Jamiroquai. Interestingly though, Katie Tunstall's Suddenly I See is not on the official soundtrack for The Devil Wears Prada. Which actually caused quite a lot of upset because a lot of people really love that track. That track was also featured at the end of the first episode of the TV show Ugly Betty. And Ugly Betty is very similar to The Devil Wears Prada. Uh, I'll probably talk about Ugly Betty in a little bit. But I don't know whether that was a little homage from Ugly Betty to The Devil Wears Prada. As I mentioned earlier, the aforementioned sizzle reel convinced Fox to change the release date from originally it was February 2006 and they changed it to June 2006. And they specifically placed it against the blockbuster Superman Returns. And this was very strategic, because Superman Returns had come out a couple of days prior, but otherwise there was nothing else coming out that week. So it was placed against Superman Returns as an alternative for people who may be didn't want to see Superman Returns, because let's be honest, when people think about movie marketing, they are very sexist, and they would see a movie like Superman Returns, and go, oh, well, that's a movie for the guys to go and see together, and then they'd see something like The Devil Wears Prada, and they'd say, oh, that's a movie for the girls to go and see together, so... For that reason, it was pitched against Superman Returns. Before it came out, a beautiful teaser poster was released with the iconic red stiletto with the pitchfork, and this ultimately became the brand for the entire movie's marketing. It is featured on the official artwork, it's featured on the DVD cover, and the soundtrack, as well as the reprinted tie-in version of Lauren Weisberger's original novel. And this is something that very rarely happens... Especially in movie marketing, you very rarely see one iconic image being repurposed over and over again. But that iconic red stiletto, you know, as soon as you see that, that it's the Devil Wears Prada. So, as I mentioned, the Devil Wears Prada was released in the US on the 30th of June 2006, two days after Superman Returns. It placed second at the box office against Superman Returns, which was expected. Superman Returns was a highly anticipated return, so to speak, For the Man of Steel. But most importantly, The Devil Wears Prada had no other competition that week. The following week, Pirates of the Caribbean Dead Man's Chest would be released and would obliterate the box office completely. But The Devil Wears Prada stayed strong against Superman Returns. In that second week, only $7 million or so behind Superman Returns. In the third week, the financial gap between Superman and The Devil Wears Prada was about a $1 million. By the fourth week... Superman Returns had dropped to 12th at the box office, while The Devil Wears Prada stayed strong at 8. So there was a really strong residual audience for The Devil Wears Prada that Superman Returns just didn't seem to have. The budget for The Devil Wears Prada was $35 million, and worldwide The Devil Wears Prada brought in $326.7 million. Just because I'm comparing it to Superman Returns, If you compare the budget of Superman Returns, which was $270 million and it brought in $391 million, you can see why The Devil Wears Prada is such an astonishing success story compared to Superman Returns. It's also resonated in popular culture a hell of a lot more than Superman Returns has. And Superman Returns has its fans for sure, but it also has its detractors, especially since the franchise was rebooted with Henry Cavill in the main role. The Devil Wears Prada is seen by many as one of the few movie adaptations to actually improve on its novel source material, especially with the character of Miranda. Critics agreed that Meryl Streep's performance was standout, with added complexity and character to what could have easily been a one-note villain. And when it came to awards season, I've mentioned a few of them already, but the Academy Awards, it garnered a nomination for Best Costume Design, as well as Best Actress for Meryl Streep. One of her 18 nominations, she's also had three wins. This was her 14th Academy Award nomination, which again, is astonishing. If you look at Streep's body of Oscar-nominated and winning work, things like Sophie's Choice, Kramer vs. Kramer, Out of Africa, Doubt, and then The Devil Wears Prada is just there, and it's completely different to anything else she's ever been nominated for, except maybe Into the Woods. But again, the role of Miranda is just completely different. It was also nominated for five BAFTAs, including Best Actress for Meryl Streep, Best Supporting Actress for Emily Blunt, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Costume Design, and Best Makeup and Hair. Didn't win anything at the BAFTAs either. At the Golden Globes, Meryl Streep did win Best Actress in a Musical or Comedy, and Emily Blunt was again nominated for Best Supporting Actress, and the film for Best Motion Picture, Musical or Comedy. Obviously, it didn't win those, but Meryl Streep did win Best Actress. Out of the 62 awards in that awards season, The Devil Wears Prada would go on to win 16. But the fact that this movie was nominated for 62 awards, I think, really goes to show what a special little movie it is. I think it's often overlooked by people as being a bit of a chick flick in a very derogatory way. But this is more than that. This is really, really interesting and important and really, really influential actually. So, Lauren Weisberger did write a book sequel called Revenge Wears Prada, which was published in 2013. However, it seems like a movie sequel is just never going to happen. Meryl Streep is especially unwilling to make a sequel. Sometimes, you just have a good thing, and you don't sully it with unnecessary sequels. Pirates of the Caribbean. (coughs) A musical based on The Devil Wears Prada, with a score by Sir Elton John, was hoped to play on Broadway. An initial reading was performed in July 2019, and a premiere run was announced for July and August 2020 at the James M. Nederlander Theatre in Chicago. However, we all know that 2020 has had a bit of a global pandemic going on, so that never happened, and no further news has been announced about it since. A TV show was proposed for the 2007-2008 season on Fox, but it never even got to shooting a pilot, presumably because Ugly Betty had premiered in 2006 and features a similar setup with a young woman joining a fashion magazine as a personal assistant to the editor-in-chief based on the Colombian telenovela. And like I say, Ugly Betty and The Devil Wears Prada are sometimes compared. Ugly Betty is a lot of fun, but as it's based on a telenovela, it's a bit less serious and a bit more cartoonish than The Devil Wears Prada. But again... If you like The Devil Wears Prada, you probably would really enjoy Ugly Betty. Right, moving over to social media thoughts, and specifically, we're going to start with the patron thoughts. So, patrons get the opportunity to voice their opinions first, and they also get the opportunity to get a little plug if they have a podcast. So, we're going to start with Simon, and he says, This is a film that, on paper, has nothing that I should find interesting, and yet I love it. Superb performances, especially from the two leads. With some wonderfully quotable B-word comments, one of the very few non-star movies movies that my partner can watch more than once. And I do apologise for <laughs> censoring the B-word, only because I didn't say it earlier on. Uh, and I kind of felt like it would be very hypocritical of me to not say the B-word earlier and then use the B-word in your comment. But I digress. So Simon is the co-host of the Exton Moss Experiment, Uh, as well as The Tonic Screwdriver and Oral Intercourse. He also owns his own production company, Maverick Productions, and is basically completely committed to providing excellent podcasts, as well as being the very first patron of Verbal Diorama, which I'm incredibly grateful for. Basically, if you like older British TV shows or gin, then you can't go wrong with any of the Maverick Productions podcasts. And we also have a comment from Andy from Geek Salad, And he says, Seriously, it's all Meryl Streep, all day, all night. Was there anybody else in this movie? Yeah, there is. But generally, yes, it is all about Meryl. You probably know by now if you're a regular listener, but Andy is one of the hosts of the always fashionable Geek Salad. I don't think they've done an episode on fashion, actually, but I wouldn't put it past them because they cover everything about geek culture, movies, TV shows, music, games, pretty much everything. He's by far my most prominent commenter. Despite his dislike of Hook. And no, Andy, I'm still not over that. Uh, anyway, I will put some links in the show notes for Maverick Productions and also for Geek Salad. Right, moving over to the rest of social media. And um, and honestly, there's a distinct lack of comments uh, on social media. I can only assume that the rest of you didn't want to get on the wrong side of Miranda Priestley, You know, and I get that. She's very influential and prestigious. The only person who was willing to give a comment on social media was the wonderful Liz from the awesome Movie Reviews in 20 Qs podcast. I've been on that podcast twice now, and it's I always have the best time ever on that podcast. Um, anyway, so Liz, who's the only person, says... I really like this film and I'm sure Sam would too if he gave it a chance. The casting is brilliant, especially Meryl Streep and Emily Blunt, as is the dialogue. I do think Andy's friends absolutely suck though. They should be supporting her, not piling on her. And we did have a bit of a Twitter conversation after this. Basically, I agree. I think her boyfriend sucks more than her friends but yeah her friends also suck and her boyfriend also can't make a grilled cheese sandwich because it's all burnt like who burns a grilled cheese sandwich it's just the easiest thing in the world to make even I can make one of those anyway so thank you Liz for your comments on Twitter there are no comments on Instagram or Facebook even Jess is disappointed I did run a little additional poll on Twitter asking if people thought The Devil Wears Prada was a chick flick, in inverted commas. 66.2% said yes, 33.8% said no. Some great comments in there about films shouldn't be gendered, uh, which is something next episode is also going to be touching on, uh, that the term chick flick is purposely patronising, while others thought the term wasn't derogatory and just descriptive, and if the film was marketed as a chick flick, then it makes it one. In my opinion, though, It is not. The Devil Wears Prada is classed as a chick flick, which in my opinion is not entirely accurate and is probably a little bit insulting. This certainly isn't just a vapid, noughties comedy. It's a story about generational gaps, fashion culture and the class war. It passes the Bechdel test with flying colours and why would it not? It's female-focused, female-fronted, female-written, both the book and the screenplay and it highlights the struggles most women face in the workplace. It allows its female characters to have agency, ambition and respect, despite them not being the archetypal female character. Andy's journey between the class divide is highlighted by her transition from frumpy, real journalist to stylish fashion queen. Of course, her friends and boyfriend don't understand she's becoming Miranda. It's only when she really understands this that she rejects the life despite earning Miranda's ultimate respect. It's a little like the daughter desperate for acceptance from the mother, but then turns into the mother themselves. And this isn't a movie about finding your way in the world. It's about entering high society. And that's why it appeals, because not many of us will ever get a glimpse into that lifestyle ourselves. So we watch and experience it vicariously through Andy. We live in a world of patriarchal societal norms, where women are constantly questioned on every single ability, whether it's business Raising a family or everyday life, there is always someone there who's going to question what a woman does, whether she's doing it right, and why is she doing it. And where The Devil Wears Prada is concerned, there's nothing quite as intoxicating as power when you're not used to having it. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on The Devil Wears Prada. If you loved this episode, you can help Verbal Diorama grow and be noticed by others by doing one of the following things. So you could leave a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. You could retweet or like posts on social media because that always helps with visibility. And you can also tell your friends and family about this podcast and basically share it with as many people as possible. And if you did like this episode specifically on The Devil West Prada, you might also like one of the following episodes, episode 20, Edge of Tomorrow because it's excellent Emily Blunt and I thank The Devil Wears Prada for so much but mostly I thank Devil Wears Prada for Emily Blunt because Emily Blunt is outstanding and she is never more outstanding than she is in Edge of Tomorrow she is an absolute queen if you've not seen Edge of Tomorrow go and watch it for Emily Blunt because she is awesome in that movie. Episode 21 Legally Blonde And um, this was a bit of a wild card choice, but I kind of felt like there were a lot of similarities between the stories in Legally Blonde and in The Devil Wears Prada. Elle may become a lawyer to chase Warner, but she's actually really good at being a lawyer. And she kind of gets that intoxication of being a lawyer. And I just think it's a really fun movie. And again, it's a movie that is called a chick flick. It is so much more than that. There's so many more levels of nuance and complexity in Elle Woods. And it's just a really, really fun movie. And episode 59, Death Becomes Her, because how can you not want more excellent Meryl Streep? And she is really, really fun in that movie. If you haven't seen Death Becomes Her, I would absolutely recommend it. And then I would recommend listening to my episode on Death Becomes Her because I really, really love that movie. And it's for Meryl Streep and Goldie Horn. And to be honest, it's the only other Meryl Streep movie that I've covered, so I had to include it. Obviously, give me feedback on my recommendations. Let me know if you think I missed anything. The next episode of the podcast, I am going to be having the time of my life. And I'm going to be getting a guest along for the ride. Mark Asquith, the CEO of Captivate and Rebel Based Media, is going to be carrying watermelons with me to discuss the iconic Dirty Dancing. It was recorded a couple of months back. And it's a delightful discussion on Dirty Dancing, so make sure you stick around for episode 91, Nobody Puts Verbal Diorama in the Corner. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd at Verbal Diorama. Do you want exclusive episodes of Verbal Diorama? If so, you can sign up at patreon.com verbaldiorama verbal diorama to support this podcast. And you get some fab perks, including now exclusive episodes, because on April Fool's Day of all days, I hit 20 patrons, 20 magical patrons. I have some thanks to Dish Out, firstly to Mark of 100 Things We Learned From Film podcast for becoming patron number 19. And then a few hours later Brendan also became a patron, patron number 20, meaning my 20 in 2020 target had been achieved. A uh, huge thanks to Mark and Brendan for becoming patrons of this podcast. As it currently stands, an exclusive episode of One Division will be your prize. Exclusive episodes are available for all patron tiers and the episode on One Division will be out soon. And a massive thank you to all of the patrons of Verbal Diorama. They are Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristin, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Matt, Trevor, Scott, Mark and Brendan. You are all wonderful. That's all. I do have a merch store, it's at teespring.com/slash stores slash verbal diorama if you're interested. You can also email me general hellos, feedback, or suggestions, verbaldiorama at gmail.com, or check out the brand new website, verbaldiorama.com. It's beautiful. You can also pop over to filmstories.co.uk where I write certain bits and pieces. I'm actually writing a new feature. Uh, my previous feature was on Greece too. Uh, This one is not on Grease 2, but it is on a really, really interesting movie, Uh, and I'm currently writing that as we speak. Hopefully that will be published on the website soon, but there is a new issue of the magazine that's just dropped on people's doorsteps, so please check out the magazine, support film stories, read articles and stuff, that would be awesome. And finally, cue the fashion montage.
0: What do you think? Ah uh,
2: I think we better get out of here before my girlfriend
0: sees me. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: Bye.